This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Now imagine going for a hip or knee replacement surgery and being up on your feet that very same day. Maybe even being able to walk out of the hospital on that day itself. These are advancements that are now possible thanks to technical and technological advances, uh, which have led to early recovery and fewer post-surgical complications in the patients. So joining me on the show today in the studio, consultant orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Dr. Siva Kumar Ariratnam from Subang Jaya Medical Center to explain how um, he has refined his surgical techniques techniques over the years and also adopted uh, some cutting-edge technology to help patients um, become more mobile faster, get back on their feet and how that helps uh, in terms of their recovery in the weeks and months to come. So call us with your questions. Um, I know that our listeners are particularly interested when it comes to joint issues. Uh, you may have concerns when it comes to uh, whether you may need a he- hip or knee replacement procedure. Uh, you may be struggling with some pain and some uh, problems. So this is your chance to ask Dr. Siva. Call us 03-777-32900 or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Dr. Siva, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you today? I'm good, Shawik. Thank you for having me. And um, perhaps um, we could look at who might typically be a candidate that you uh, would advise um, for a hip or knee replacement or any sort of a joint replacement, although I, I, we are narrowing in on hip and knee because they are most common. Who might you advise um, to go for one? What kinds of problems would they have come to you with and how would you deem them appropriate for a procedure like that? Um, basically, it's pain and disability. So someone who has continuous pain, not responding to conventional anti-inflammatory medications or painkillers, uh, pain all the time, pain at night, uh, and loss of function. So those would be the typical candidate. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of patients may want to explore other options first. Are there options besides surgery uh, that they should be looking at to deal with the issues of pain and disability and all of that? Absolutely. So the the, the first thing that they should uh, consider doing is uh, physiotherapy. Uh, Muscle strengthening helps alleviate pain and uh, maybe take supplements, uh, doing some, you know, remedies such as ice therapy and using a knee guard, stuff like that. But how long should people try that, you know, persist with that um, before you would say, or they might deem it's still not helping me. I, I want to then look at my next option. So continuous pain, pain which doesn't resolve with all these measures, that would be the time you need to seek help from a doctor. Mm, Okay. And how has the profile of patients requiring hip and knee replacements changed over the years? Um, You know, I had this impression that we're looking at mostly the older adults. Is that still the case today? Uh, Well, let's just say knee replacements. So for patients requiring knee replacements, 15, 20 years ago, someone who's 50-year-old, I would have considered them to be young. But these days, most of our patients are in that age group. So patients are getting younger and patients are also getting older. 
So you find more older patients coming in for surgery or the fact that we are doing um, surgeries for older patients because physiologically there are a lot of the elderly now who are young. So they've got a chronological age of 80 and they've got a physiological age of 60. So they're young and active and, uh, and the techniques and technologies have improved to be able to do knee replacements or hip replacements safely in these patients. So in the past, might you have said that uh, somebody who's 80 years old would just be unfit and perhaps you know unsafe for them to undergo a surgery like I, that? I think probably 85 would be an unsafe or an unfit age. Um, but I think now, I like you know a few years ago, I had a colleague who was a cardiologist who brought a mother, and her mother was was in her you know mid 80s. And um, I would have, if it, was, if it wasn't a, a colleague's mother, I would have said, you know, you're too old to have this surgery. But she understood. She said, look, I'll manage the, um, the other bits, the, the, the medical issues of it. Uh, and then she knew exactly what she was dealing with because her mom's parents lived to be 100 years old. And so she, she knew that there was a good 15 years ahead. And so we help, we, you know, we could manage these, these issues together. And it's basically expectations of the patient. The patient wanted to have it done. The family understood the implications and the risks, and they opted to have, have it done. So in instances like that, I've sort of pushed the ticket, and uh, I've done them in older patients. And uh, thank, thankfully, we've been very successful with these patients. I know this is a very general question, but, you know, what's the oldest age? Uh, 88. Wow. And the last time Very I checked, nice patient, patient was 92, still alive, still walking. All right. Fantastic. Um, when you say patient's expectations, what, does, what would that look like? Um, what would patients be wanting to do, uh, wanting to get out of surgery uh, that would tip the scales in the favor of, of undergoing the procedure? So I think the biggest concern is pain. So everyone's, and, and disability, everyone's got a story of about a neighbor who couldn't get out of bed after surgery, who, um, you know, has continuous pain after surgery, unable to bend, unable to extend. So all these things, these are patients' biggest fears. Yes. So is that true? Uh, no. Well, yes, those are risks, but it's very, very uncommon. It's not, you know, if, if you choose your patient right, and um, examine them and make sure that, you know, these, these, you know, comorbidities or there are no other issues with the patient, then that's very, very rare. What might be some um, characteristics or risks um, in some patients that might predispose them to be those few who suffer those debilitating effects of the surgery? Okay, one very important thing. Okay, we'll be excluding things like comorbidities and things like that. So patients who are diabetic or hypertensive. But sometimes... They cannot, they cannot undergo? No, they can, but we need to manage their risks. So we know some patients have a higher risk of infections, for instance. Uh, so we need to... to we've, we've got little protocols that... Mm -hmm. So we send, say, a diabetic off to an endocrinologist and we try to bring them down to a certain level before we do them. Right. Uh, so mistakes that a doctor can make. So sometimes we, we look at an x-ray and we look at a severe knee arthritis, but the patient has a very bad spine disease where uh -huh. the patient has compression of the nerves in the spine. So the overriding problem that the patient actually came with is 
weakness because of, of nerve compression. But we are just looking at a, at, a, at a contracted view, looking at a bad x-ray and saying, hey, you need to get a knee replacement done. Mm. So the patient undergoes a knee replacement and then comes, comes out of surgery and a month later says, look, I came here with a problem and you haven't solved that problem. I did not have pain. I came here with weakness. I can hardly walk 100 meters, not because of pain, because after that I can't take another step. So these are, you know, the sort of things that you've got to be careful. You've got to look at the patient as a whole. Some patients are very weak. I've had patients even this year whom I said, look, don't do this surgery because you're going to struggle. And she asked me one question. She said, doctor, will I be able to walk pain-free? I said, you will be, but it's going to be a struggle. And she went ahead with the surgery and it was a struggle, but she, two or three months down the line, she was happy she had it done and she could walk, she was pain-free. So these are the things that we should be able to manage and we should be able to pick up early and advise patients accordingly. All right. So it's not a miracle. It's not a fairy tale. It where, is not right. a fairy so tale. Right. So there is a lot of commitment from the patients as well. And if their expectations are managed and they're still okay with that. Yes. Then, um, then you go down that path. Yeah. So I get patients coming and thinking, "Oh, you're you're the guy who you know does this. I want to be able to walk the same day." There's a lot of things to talk about before you can actually get down to that stage. All right. Um, we will unpack that um, later on in terms of uh, what is that struggle in overcoming the after effects, the pain, any potential complications, what have you, uh, you know, sort of improved in terms of your surgical techniques. But before we get to that, actually, what exactly can a person expect, and I, I, you've already alluded to it, I want to be able to um, walk again pain-free. So, you know, if we sort of zoom into the, the knee joint, let's say, what are you doing in that joint to give the patient that outcome that they want? So you want to give the patient a pain-free, stable joint. So it's got to be pain-free, obviously, because they've come with pain. The joint has to be stable, uh, so that they'll be able to walk, they'll be able to maybe hike, uh, you know, do their the expectation, their the activities within the expectations. And you want to give a joint that would last as long as it possibly can. Mm, okay. So without requiring a repeat procedure. Or with, with a repeat way, way down the line, as, as far away down the line as you can. Okay. We'll go for a quick break and come back and look at, you know, when you actually undergo the surgery itself, um, what are we looking at in terms of the after effects, addressing some of the fears that Dr. Siva has mentioned about pain, um, being unable to move for a very long time. How much does the surgical technique play a role? How much does technology play a role? How much does the patient's um, sort of involvement and engagement in the recovery play a role as well? Do call us with your questions, um, whether it's related to joint replacement procedure or perhaps you're struggling with some pain that you, you know, haven't been able to uh, identify, um, you can get some advice here. You can call 0377332900, WhatsApp 018-789-8899. I'm speaking to Dato Dr. Siva Kumar Ariratnam, consultant orthopedic surgeon from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my guest, Dato. Dr. Siva Kumar Ratnam, consultant orthopedic surgeon from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. We're discussing hip and knee replacement surgery, the ability to help patients be up on their feet uh, as soon as possible. Why is that an important consideration in fact? And uh, what are the technical and technological advances that have brought us to these outcomes today? You can call us if you have questions 03-7733-2900 WhatsApp 018-789-8899 You know, this idea of getting patients on their feet as soon as possible after surgery. I mean, I've spoken to a lot of orthopedic surgeons and, and this is something to strive for, but it may seem counterintuitive uh, for some people. And in fact, um, you know, a listener had a question earlier, is it necessarily better to be walking on a recently operated knee? Why not the traditional rest and recuperation period? Absolutely. I think it's a great question. I'm, I'm happy you brought it up. So the question of why... Um, when we, as surgeons, do knee replacements or any surgery for that matter, the main thing that's of our concern is complications. What is the most dreaded complication of a knee replacement? The most dreaded complication is death. Is it uncommon? It is not, right? So why do people die after knee replacement? Because patients get pulmonary embolisms. So what is pulmonary embolism? Uh, deep vein thrombosis is blood clots in the leg. Mm-hmm. And this, when it, when it goes up to the lung, uh, it can block the, the, the oxygenation and patients can just drop dead. So this is not an uncommon uh, complication. So how do you reduce the risk of, of pulmonary embolism or DVT? So for years, for decades, we've been told early mobilization reduces the risk. But no one really defined early mobilization. What is early mobilization? So back in 2007, when I was working in Australia, uh, they had a very unique insurance scheme. Where, so patients after surgery were allowed to stay in the hospital for three days. And then on the fourth day, they were transferred to a rehab facility in a remote location. So on the third day, the guy I was working with, he used to do a venogram. And if patients had a DVT, then they, they, the insurance allowed them to stay back in the hospital indefinitely because that was life-threatening, right? So he, um, in the year prior to me joining him, had uh, had a change in his in his surgical approach. So prior to that, he did a midline medial parapetella, which is the normal incision almost 99% of surgeons do till today. So what that involves is cutting through the quadriceps muscle, which is the main muscle in the front of your thigh, to open up the knee to do the surgery. But what he did was a muscle sparing approach. So he, the vast majority of the muscle was actually moved aside rather than cut through to do the operation. And he told us that, look, I'm quite sure that ever since I started doing this, plus a little bit of injections around the knee, (coughs) I've had less DVT. So we went up and looked it up. We looked at the 50 cases prior and the 50 cases from the day he started, right? So the very first case onwards. And we were able to prove that there were statistically significantly less DVT in those that were walked within 24 hours that were mobilized within 24 hours rather than those that were mobilized beyond 24 hours with the protocol. And we went on to show that if the patient walked at least five meters, the risk of DVT was almost zero. So in Malaysia and in, in Asia, we always thought, ah, you know what, DVT is a, is a problem of the white man. It doesn't affect Malaysians at all. But a paper published from the University of Malaya in 1998 showed that there, that was not true. 
they they looked at uh, DVT in 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 thirty patients undergoing lower limb surgeries, and they found that the risk of silent DVTs was as high as about, I think it was about seventy odd percent, and the highest number were among patients undergoing knee replacements, mm. and uh, so it's not a low this right so so I picked that up that lesson of doing you know muscle sparing approaches to the knee. And then in 2009, I again worked in for another year in Canada in one of the, the the biggest joint replacement institutes in North America. And here I learned how to use to do um, periarticular injections. So um, a mixture of drugs which we inject around the knee, the the quantity, the duration, at, at which stage of this surgery, where do you inject it? So when I came back, I combined these two and I started doing my knee replacements. So my early mobilization started by chance. I get a call from the nurse, the ward nurse one day, and she says, oh, doctor, your patients walked to the toilet. And I got alarmed, right? So it was four hours after surgery. I said, what on earth? Why did that happen? So I rushed down to the ward, looked at the patient, looked at the x-rays and thought, you know, has something gone loose? You know, this, you know, are we in trouble here? And kind of, you know, told the patient off. But then when I thought about it, Look, how do you fix the implants to the bone? You fix it with bone cement. How long does it take bone cement to, to cure, to harden? It takes 13 minutes. So technically, there's no difference in the stability of the joint at 13 minutes, at one day, five days, or 10 days, right? And then, but there was still, I myself doubted myself. I said, no, you can't make patients walk the same day. I mean, I must be crazy. Anyway, I put the entire blame on the patient. I said, look, if something goes wrong, it's your fault. Right? You should not have walked. So, and then I, I collected all these. I found that with muscle sparing approaches and periodical injections, more and more patients were, were walking. And so when I went to the U.S. for the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, believe it or not, there was one whole school of, of people who were talking about early mobilization in daycare surgeries. So I was the guy there, and I was playing the devil's advocate, asking all the worst questions. You know, what about stability? Has anyone looked at the implants coming loose? And, you know, that's where the great minds meet. And so there are people who said, look, we've done RSA, radio stereometric analysis to see if there's any subsidence. We've done all that. We've got a lot of data to say that is absolutely safe and it's beneficial to walk your patient early. So that's how it started. So now I get patients who walk, I let them walk when they want to. So I've got patients who walk at four hours, at six hours after surgery. I get patients who climb stairs even the same day of surgery. And then that's, that's how it evolves. So it's not me pushing for it, but now I do because I know that the advantages are far greater than the risks, or in fact, there are no risks of, of walking immediately after surgery. No risks at all? N well, there's, there's never is never right in mm. medicine, but, but I can't think of any, I mean, of course, if the patient falls, right? But patients who are able to walk, you know, we would get the physios in. Most of the time, the first walking is always with me. I'm a very anal retentive surgeon. I, I do dressings myself. I do everything myself, you know, so... First walk, if it's within the day, it's always with me. Or I've got one or two really good physios who have been with me for the last five years who would be brave enough to do that. We've never had a risk. We've never had a complaint. We've never had a fall. So I, you know, I, I, I would, you know, never say never, but I would say that the risks are actually very, very small. So um, that answers the question of stability. But what about pain? Okay, so... 
obviously, to walk a patient early, I'll have to reduce pain. So when you talk about pain, a knee replacement, don't get, don't get fooled, is a very, very painful operation. I remember a patient back in 2005. So I was working in a government hospital. Implants were free. Patient was a pensioner. So she opted to do one knee at a time. So she did the knee and, you know, we went through the rehab, blah, blah, blah. Six months later, I told her, ma'am, when would you like to do your other knee? So she said, doctor, I really like you. You're a really nice guy. You've taken care of me really well. But I've had five children without epidural. The pain of your surgery was far worse than... than so it's extreme. I'm very happy with the knee that I have now. But even the thought of going through that pain... Right puts me off. Right. So, you know, I, I could probably die just from the thought. So that is a very real so concern. it is a very real concern. It mm-hmm. is an extremely painful operation. And even today, there are patients whom I struggle with. The only difference is that I, n- most of the time, know patients whom I'm going to struggle with. And if they're listening in now, they know who they are. And I've told them that even before surgery. And they have been grateful because at the end of the day, after two or three months, they were happy that... I pre-warned them and I told them, look, you're going you're gonna to have a tough run. Uh, so it is. But with, like I said, with muscle sparing approaches and periarticular injections, and another thing is polypharmacy. So using different medications, oral medications or IV medications at different times, understanding the duration of actions and their side effects and using them in combination actually allows me to manage most, most, the pain mostly by myself. So in the past, it was said that, you know, you need to do put patients on an epidural anesthetic and then, you know, they are mobilized in a knee, mobilized uh, in a... Uh, in a Some uh, sort of a contraption. Yeah, so the, the, the continuous passive mobilization machine, which, you know, slowly bends and extends. Yeah, so it takes a one minute for the thing to bend it and then extend it. Then after two days, when the patient gets off the epidural, there's breakthrough pain and then it's another struggle. But these are passive mobilizers. They don't, it's not active mobilization. So the reduced risk of DVT comes with active mobilization. So 20 years ago, it was said that epidural analgesia is the gold standard in treatment, but that's no longer the case. So I do mine with general anesthetic, periarticular injections, multimodal analgesia, and that's how I get my patient's pain under control. So... The fact that a patient can voluntarily, um, you know, get up and walk to the bathroom, let's say, um, you know, let's say five, six hours, does indicate, you know, it, cause it, because if it was so painful, they wouldn't, right? So it does indicate that yeah, exactly. it's reduced so pain. So I don't have a rotan and say, hey, you get up mm. or else. They do get up. They, not all. I would say maybe six, seven out of 10 patients would walk day of surgery. Even patients having surgery at one o'clock would walk at six o'clock. I have a Kampong somewhere tucked away in, in Slango where, you know, these are tough, young, tough, tough elderly ladies. They all come in in the morning, get admitted, get the operation at one o'clock. They walk at six, they climb stairs at nine o'clock the next morning and they're off at 10 o'clock in the morning. So there are people who can do that. But, but I would never, never, ever expect everyone. I would never get angry with a patient who can't because I know that some can and some can't. Uh, so we've got we've got a lot of things up our sleeves to help with the pain, and mm. we we use those to control the pain and make it as pleasant as possible. Mm. Um, small deviation on the point of the 
muscle sparing technique. Um, you learned it from a surgeon in Australia and you were talking about, you know, in Europe and, and um, was it the US where um, they were exploring this a lot more. Did you find differences in dealing with Asian joints? Uh, again, pertaining, if, if you're talking, okay. Size? So size, obviously our joints are much, much smaller. Our bone quality is poorer. In this topic, I think the, the most significant difference would be in hips. So if you talk about a, a Caucasian hip, uh, the, the, you know, when I was working abroad, the, the standard hips would be about a 56 size established shell. They would go from a 54 to a 64, whereas in Malaysia, it would usually be between a 40 and a 54 or a 40 and a 58. So they are smaller, but that's not the main problem with, with Asiatic hips. Now, believe it or not, we primary osteoarthritis of the hip is almost is, is very uncommon among Asians. Asians always have secondary osteoarthritis to something else. It could be a vascular necrosis. It could be a, displas, you know, a dysplastic hip. So primary osteoarthritis is almost never. Right. So... Not only are the hips smaller, the hips are, uh, are far more challenging to, to manage because when you have a dysplastic hip, you have a very socket, uh, you have a very shallow socket to begin with as opposed to a deep socket in, in, in a... So risks like dislocations and stuff uh, and, and early failure are much higher with our patients than with Caucasian patients. I see. All right. Um, the technology um, as well, um, how has this changed and how has it, you know, sort of added to the ability of the surgeon to, again, get patients on their feet and reduce that risk of the blood clots? So um, in terms of technology, I think the biggest buzzword now is robotics. And this has changed, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, I was talking about patient-specific instruments. Then there's patient-specific implants, which I didn't buy into. There's been computer navigation, which I did not like because uh, we didn't. Nobody really knew the the complications of computer navigations, and I felt that uh, conventional surgery was safer than computer navigation. But but uh, robotic surgery is a completely different ball game. Um, I've been following that space for the last 15 years. The initial robotics were were terrible. I would never have adopted them. But the, in the, the state of the art, uh, which I've been using a lot of in the last year, of course, we can use them for conventional knee and hip replacements. But there are very niche areas where, where I really like, uh, like, say, for instance, with hip replacements. So for the last 70 to 80 years, hip replacements have been done via a lateral or a posterior approach. And these are very good approaches. The only downside, if you, if you want to be very specific, is that you need to cut through some of the major muscles to get into the hip. And so while you repair them on the way out, you still have a risk of some weakness, especially in someone who's, who's got very little muscle to begin with, uh, risk of weakness, risk of limbs after uh, surgery. Mm. Uh, but there is, in the, about 15 years ago, someone... Um, found, uh, said that they could do hip replacements through an anterior approach. Uh, and the advantage is that you actually do not cut a single muscle to get in. You just separate muscles to get in. Again, the muscle sparing. Again, muscle sparing. So this is like the muscle sparing approach of the hip. So I explored that 15 years ago and I, and I, and I told myself, no way am I going to do it. 
Why? Because number one, it required an, an expensive table, which at that time cost about 300,000. And the technique was not well developed. The complications were many. And these are Caucasian patients who have stronger bones. So if you've got to put the hip in a very abnormal position and you put torsional forces through the femur. Mm. So the risk of complications, fractures were high. So I said, no way am I going to do this. Another reason is that to actually make a hole or ream the, the socket, the establum, you'd have to use uh, an X-ray to, to, to do that because you can't really visualize the hip really well. And Asian hips, the, the anterior and the back walls are about between three to five, eight centimeters, eight millimeters in thickness, whereas the Caucasian hip can go up to about 20 millimeters. So if you deviate by two to three millimeters, it's a big deal. You can mm. even blow through a wall. So I, 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 I resigned to the fact that I'm going to continue doing this through a posterior and lateral approach. Now, the robotic was a game changer because it could, it could tweak the position of, of the reaming to 0.1 millimeter. So now I'm actually doing anterior hip surgeries, getting patients off without a limp uh, using robotics. So those are the, the sort of the, the, the things that for me is like mind-blowing. It's like, you know, finally I'm doing anterior hip surgeries because of, of, of robotics. Um, things like, you know, there are very specific arthritis like patellofemoral, isolated patellofemoral arthritis, which is extremely rare. I would probably do about one or two cases a year previously. Now with um, robotics, it becomes safer and easier to do. So um, in, in those areas, besides the fact that I'm also doing them for conventional, straightforward knees. So I think I think robotics is is a very big thing in in, in knee replacements, and mm. I think it's it's definitely very advantageous. But you know, it's a shiny new instrument. Um, it can get people very excited. Uh, would you advise patients to sort of be looking at? Can I do it robotically or not as the determining factor in, in you know in their decision? Uh, one thing to remember in medicine is never say never. <clears throat> and one there's no one answer to anything. So while I'm hoo-haing about robotic surgery, uh, I, I you know this year I think about seventy percent of what I've done has been robotics. There are patients who come in requesting and I say absolutely not you're going to get conventional surgery for blah, 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 blah reason. So it's not for everyone. There's some people who would do far better and safer with conventional surgery. So it is a tool. It, it cannot replace um, good surgical experience and good surgical technique. Mm. So there, there are patients who say, I want robotic, and I say, no, you're not, because it's, it's not for you, and this is the reason why, and they're happy with, with my explanation. All right. We'll come back from the next break to look at what's next. Um, if we have these advances now that can get patients up on their feet, um, you know, get them mobile, walking, pain has been reduced significantly. What does the recovery still look like? Um, what is needed from patients 
in that process because they would have left hospital um, by then. They're at home. Uh, they're trying to get back to daily activities. What's going to help that recovery process? We'll continue that discussion after the break. You can call us at 0377332900 or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 if you have questions for Dato Dr. Siva Kumar Ariratnam, consultant orthopedic surgeon from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. Stay tuned to Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik, and my guest, Dato Dr. Siva Kumar Ariratnam, consultant orthopedic surgeon from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. We're discussing joint replacement surgery, advances in techniques, surgical approaches uh, that can now spare the muscles involved in the procedure, as well as technological advances, uh, namely robotics that have been a game changer in um, improving the precision um, of the uh, of the procedure, um, we've talked a lot about how muscle sparing, as well as um, the right kind of, or, or rather, uh, improving the way uh, painkillers are injected into the joint, how that will get patients um, up, mobile, um, reduce pain for them, uh, although. Dr. Siva, you have been very realistic as well in cautioning that um, no such thing as zero pain. Yep. Um, manage those expectations, right? Um, but what does it look like, um, you know, after that, the first five, six hours, they're up on their feet, they've, they've like, you know, and that's such a milestone, isn't it? But what does the picture look like for them after that within hospital as well as when they are discharged? Um, what's next in terms of their recovery? So it's, it's, it's no magic. Um, patients still take about, I tell them, between two to four months to recover 85%. Actually, how long before they are discharged, typically? Okay, so I, I know I've been associated with daycare surgeries, but most, the vast majority of my patients stay within for three to five days. Some stay longer, some would stay a night. It's basically entirely up to the patient. Um, but recovery, it's still the same surgery. Uh, so you still need to wait for your muscles to, to repair, your, your, your blood vessels to repair and your tissues to repair. So it still takes within two to four, four months mm -hmm. uh, before patients recover. Some patients recover earlier. One benchmark that I use is when you have patients who have two knees and want to get only one done at a time, at how long, how fast they come requesting for the other knee. Ten years ago, it would have been six months earliest. Now I get patients at as early as two to three weeks saying, hey, can I get the next knee done now? So that's how fast it is. So they're not 100% recovered, but they're confident enough to say, look, now this knee can support the other knee and I want to get this done sooner than I thought that I would have wanted to get it done. Um, is it okay for them to get it done it that is, soon? If, if they are, but I generally don't. I still push it. I think the earliest I've actually done it is 31 days uh, before I did it. So this guy was indignant. He said, look, I'm swimming and I can do everything. Why do you want me, want me to wait another two weeks for what? And I said, you know, generally you want your blood counts to improve and, you know, you've just undergone anesthesia. Yes, you can get another procedure done, but it's an elective procedure. Why rush through it? Let's kind of delay it for as long as we can. Um, does the physiotherapist get involved in that very first day itself um, when you're trying to get the patients up on their feet quite soon? Yes, they do. Um, in fact, if 
patients can afford time for prehab uh, physiotherapy prior to surgery. In fact, there's there's one patient whom I said, look, it's going to be a rough ride. I'd rather you do some prehab first and sent her off for a few months of rehab. I said few months, but she came back at exactly 30 days sobbing in pain. And I said, okay, let's do the operation this week. She said, but you told me three months. I said, but you've got to a point where you can't proceed. And, uh, you know, I'm happy that you have committed to physiotherapy. And I think now it's time to intervene, do surgery and send you back because at least you know what. And so she did well. She We managed expectations and she had surgery done. So physio is very important for, for, for surgery. And it should continue uh, during those months of recovery that you said? Um, well, there are patients who once they're pain-free, would do nothing else. So I'm a bit alarmed about those patients. I would tell them, look, you've got to keep strengthening because the last thing you want is to turn 75 or 80 and and have no muscle strength and everything is fine, but you can't stand up and walk. Mm-hmm. Um, there are exercises that I teach patients now to do on their own, which they can do to maintain strength. I tell them, look, these are anti-aging exercises. So the, the, the relative, say, if it's a wife for a knee replacement, the husband would ask, can I do it? I say, yeah, absolutely. So these exercises that you can do, which we give knee replacement patients, and some of them are uh, do it, so that's good. But it indivi- it's, it's, depends on the individual. Some need it, some don't need so much of physiotherapy. But what you're saying is that you're looking at benefits beyond the joint. You're looking at the muscles surrounding it and strengthening that. Yes. Right. Mindset change, isn't it, for a lot of people? Yes, because for them, if there's no pain, I'm sorted. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm. Um, you talked a little bit about daycare and you're, you're very cautious about that. What is the cautionary tale with regard to, um, you know, the, the risks and expectations that people have to manage with it being a day procedure? So this is very interesting. Um, I did my first daycare surgery by chance. Now, again, about 15 years ago, there's this buzz in Europe and America about daycare surgeries. When I thought about it, I said, why? I mean, you know, what's wrong with keeping a patient for one night and sending them home the next day if they want to? Why this big push? So there's a big financial push in the U.S. Uh, What happened was we had uh, um, an an Australian CEO who one day bumped into me in the corridor and says, hey, you know what? The Ramsey Sweden group wants to teach a couple of surgeons how to do daycare surgery. Would you be interested? I said, look, I can do it. I I don't need to be thought how to do it. I can do it if I need to, but there really isn't a need to do it. She says, you can. I said, yeah. She said, well, why don't you? I said, why would I? I mean, you know, patients can stay one night. You know, the cost is not terribly high for one night of stay. So why would you want to do something like that? So she said, look, you know what? I'm anyway going to go ahead and and, uh, apply to KKM for home nursing and home physio because you can't do it without home nursing and home physio. So then I get a patient who comes in during the pandemic and, and, and keeps postponing her surgery because she's somewhat immunocompromised. And the, she says, I, I want to get this done, but I do not want to stay in the hospital. So then I said, look, there is a possibility that we can do it under daycare, but I would be extremely cautious. What we would do is we will get you admitted in the morning of surgery. We'll get the surgery done. And I will see you at five o'clock. If I'm happy, you're happy, your husband's happy, then we let you go. But it's a big if. And so I called my CEO and said, look, I think we have a you know, patient for daycare. And she was all elated. And so what we did was um, we got her admitted at nine o'clock, a bit of confusion. We started the surgery late around about nine. 
when I met her at lunchtime, she had already walked to the toilet. Hmm. And then I said, okay. Yes, the motivation so, yeah. there. <laughs> so I said, fine. Um, then I said, I'll come back and see you at five. So I went to my clinic, came back at five. She was all dressed, bags packed, bed made, <laughs> and she was sitting out in the chair. And she said, I'm going home. I said, so what have you done from the time I saw you at lunchtime? And now, oh, I, you know, I, the physio came. I said, did you walk? Did you go out to the corridor? Yeah, I walked out in the, the room. I walked down the corridor. I walked up the back flight of emergency stairs, down, back down the corridor and back to this chair. And I'm sitting here. Now I'm going home. So I said, fine. So then I got her discharged. Uh, I don't usually do this, but I gave the husband my phone number and said, look, anything at night. He was living within five kilometers. I say, I've not done this before, so anything at night, just give me a call, right? And uh, so what we did was the next morning, the home care physio and nurses visited the patient at home, did their, you know, BP, pulse rate check. And uh, I and now we have teleconferencing, so I, I teleconferenced with the patient. The patient was happy. I asked the physio, what did you do? She said, what do I do? The patient walked down the stairs to greet me, <laughs> so there's really nothing to do. Uh, we checked the dressing, checked everything. And so that's how it happened. So this happened, and, and this was publicized by the hospital, I think about seven, eight months after I'd done it. I had no intentions of, of actually blowing this out because I thought this is not something that I want to tell people I do in a big way. And then I get calls from patients saying, hey, I'm, I want to come tomorrow. Can I do a daycare surgery and go? And I said, absolutely not. That's not how it works. So I do very little. In fact, even if someone comes and says, I want to do daycare surgery, I'll say, why would you want to do daycare surgery? Why don't you just stay the night and see how you are? And so I don't push, I don't, when you come to me and say, I want to do a knee replacement, the last, I'd, I'd never tell you daycare. And if you ask, because now you know, I'd say, you know, you've got to fulfill a lot of criteria, body mass index, you've got to be living nearby, your family's got to be supportive, and there's got to be a real solid reason why you should do daycare. And that system of the community-based care, the, the home care, yes. needs to be available, right? Exactly right. So... We had a, for so at that time she was, you know, Trish was a very forward-thinking CEO. She said, well, if they can do it in the Europe and if you can do it, then you're going to do it and we're going to get our name out and say that we've done it. So it's basically that, and, and it was a very unique situation. We had a patient who wanted it and a patient whom I thought was justified that she needed it. And so we went ahead and we did it and we got all the, you know, all the necessary mm. available. So then with the caution that you practice with other patients um, who, you know, may not necessarily need that um, so urgently, what is still priority is the early mobilization, getting back on your feet yes. early. Yes, so everyone It's gets, not about leaving the hospital immediately. No, it's nothing. In fact, I would be very uncomfortable sending you home on the day of surgery. Mm. I'd be happy if you stayed a night and you were monitored. Though the monitoring now, you know, 15 years ago, I sent patients to high dependency and ICUs. Now they're monitored in the ward because they can walk, they can eat, they can pass urine. They've got stable blood pressures and pulses. So there's no reason to send them to a high dependency and get cross infections and stuff. All right. Um, just very quickly, um, we talked about, we started the show talking about non-surgical options. Um, and if those don't work, the pain is continuous, then consider surgery with the considerations and, and the criteria and all that. But what if, you know, you also talked about some patients just not being appropriate for surgery, but they've exhausted the non-surgical method. So what next? How? So between non-surgery and, and a knee replacement, there's a lot of things that you can do, right? 
So sometimes patients need MRIs. They've got predominantly meniscus tears. They, they've got pretty pristine cartilage. So their pain generator is a torn meniscus. Now that patient does not need a knee replacement, right? So that patient would have a, a 20 minute procedure. Some get it done as a daycare procedure and go home. That, you know, an arthroscopy is, is, is definitely okay to do a daycare. So not all patients with knee pain end up with knee replacements. In fact, not, not, not the majority. Mm. So if you were young and you were, say, a runner and you had a bad knee, but you're still running, and if you came to me and I say, hey, cool, Shawik, let's, let's do a knee replacement, you say, no way, because I can't run and I can, I can run now, I can tape my knee and I can run, I wouldn't want to have that done. So there are other options. Patients who are near, near severe OA uh, arthritis, there are things like high tibial osteotomies that we do. So those are realigning the joints so that the, the shift of the weight-bearing axis it gets transferred to, to the other part of the joint. So patients who are cyclist runners can actually do that instead of a knee replacement. Um, for patients who absolutely are not candidates for surgery, uh, injections, so hyaluronic acid injections, sometimes with the judicious use of um, uh, steroids, uh, patients who can have uh, radiofrequency ablations where we numb the nerves around the knee that lasts for about a year. Mm. So there, there are many options for patients who, who, are not, who are really not fit for any you know, surgical procedure in the knee. Absolutely. A final message, a takeaway message um, for the idea, and I think just revolving around that concept of um, getting up and moving after a joint replacement surgery. What's your message to listeners? Um, I, I think if you're really suffering in pain, meet your orthopedic surgeon because pain is not the only thing. So when you're in pain, you generally age because when, when, when your friends call you out and say, hey, let's go to the mall, let's, let's go on a trip to the US or let's go on a trip and you're always holding back. So you, you, you walk less, you socialize less and you know humans are social beings. If you're really in constant pain, then I think you should seriously see a doctor no one can grab you and take you to the operating room and start operating on you. Get an opinion, see multiple doctors, get many opinions and, and see where you stand. Uh, but don't suffer silently in pain because there are, there are answers to, to whatever it is that you're experiencing. Thank you so much, Dr. Siva. Thank you, Shavik. I've been speaking to Dato Dr. Siva Kumar Ariratnam, consultant orthopedic surgeon from Subang Jaya Medical Centre. This has been Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.